Today's podcast is sponsored by Trellence, a QSO committed to helping credit unions reach higher. Trellence offers a suite of packaged solutions, expertise, and analytics that cultivate proven growth strategies to help credit unions focus on what's most important, their members. Among other services, Trellence offers card portfolio growth solutions to help credit unions increase the penetration, activation, and usage of their card programs, and card payments consulting, providing analysis, benchmarking, and best practices to drive growth. Visit Trellence.com for more information. From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. Success doesn't make you happy. Happiness makes you successful. That's what author and researcher Dan Lerner has found. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for Credit Union Magazine and CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, Lerner shares how positive emotions can improve performance for people in all walks of life. He also explains four ways we can work at being happy. Lerner will address CUNA's 2018 America's Credit Union Conference in Boston in late June. How did you become interested in the study of happiness, and, and what led you to make that your life's work? Ah, so the, you know, it was, it's a bit of a, of a circuitous route, I have to say. Um, so, you know, in a way, it started uh, my very earliest memories in life. I mean, I, I uh, was raised in a household with um, professional uh, classical musicians, uh, but very happy ones. So I remember uh, sneaking down the stairs after bedtime and watching my parents play music in the living room, sort of hiding and peeking around the corner. And they were two people who were uh, very happy people. They were happy doing what they were doing. They were happy with each other. I just remember thinking, what an amazing thing that you get to do something at a high level, you know, that in front of audiences, that also in your living room. And the things you do are things you enjoy. So I think happiness is always sort of part of my upbringing. Um, but I've also always been interested in, in performance in high-level performance, in part rooted in that upbringing. So uh, when I came into the business, my first area of, of work right out of college, it was talent management. And I thought, well, people are going to be happy, right, because they're successful. Uh, and I realized that wasn't the case. I realized that some of them were very successful and very happy, and some were very successful and very unhappy, and clearly lots of gray area in between. But that really caught my eye. I thought, how is this possible? How can you be successful and not happy? So... Um, uh, you know, long story short, after about 10 years, I um, I thought, I've seen enough of this divide. I need to understand what's going on. And that's when I went back to school and first studied performance psychology and then thought, I understand how people perform at a high level, psychologically and otherwise. But what about happiness? What's the role of happiness? Does it matter if people are happy? What's the impact uh, on their performance if they are? And th- And that's when I studied positive psychology. So uh, what happens to us when we are happy, when we have positive emotion, when we have positive relationships or meaning or purpose. And, and that was it. Um, I've always been curious to know what the impact of uh, well-being or happiness is on, on performance. And that's, that's, it started very, very early on. What does research tell us about uh, the link between happiness and success? I think traditionally people tend to look at the pathway to happiness is one that runs through success. When I'm successful, I'll be happy. And if you want to talk about the traditional 
measurements of, of success in our culture, uh, when I get the job, I'll be happy. But then it becomes, but now I need a promotion to be happy. When I get the salary, I'll be happy. But then people want uh, a raise in order to be happy. When I get the car, I'll be happy. Look at the commercials. When I get the house, I'll be happy. When I get, you know, whatever it is that I'm looking for, that's when I'll be happy. Um, and by all means, there is something to that. We do need to accomplish things in life. We need to make enough money to put a roof over our heads and feel secure and take care of our families. But ultimately, your question, when we are happier, when we have higher levels of positive emotion, research is showing us that we perform differently. And often we perform in a way that's more efficient, more effective. Uh, for example, if you look at one of the seminal studies uh, on positive emotion, and this is about kids. It's about uh, four- and five-year-olds. And in the study, they, they primed these kids um, with either positive emotions or negative emotions. Very simply, uh, think for the next 30 seconds of the happiest moment you possibly can. And these are four- and five-year-olds, so it's not like I was in the sandbox this morning and I saw the love of my life across <laughs> the way. It was, you know, I, I got the gold crayon today. Uh, I, I was really good at kickball. You know, I had pudding for lunch. And uh, when we see how they performed on tests afterwards, it's simple tests, put Legos together kind of thing. They performed far more efficiently, far more collaboratively, far more effectively on those tests as opposed to those kids who weren't primed at all. And, and as, as compared to kids who were primed with negative emotions, think of a really sad thing. In fact, they performed up to 50% more efficiently than those kids who were primed with negative emotions. Now, if our listeners or our readers aren't four or five years old, Let's look at a study of doctors that was very similar, where they took doctors that had at least three years of medical experience, and they, um, they primed them either uh, by having them read a medical journal, or no priming at all, or they gave them a bag of candy. Really super simple, right? Raise their spirit, something crazy. But those doctors were then given 50 symptoms to diagnose, and the ones who were primed with the candy with a positive emotion diagnosed up to 20% more accurately. So... When we look at those kind of studies, you get a sense that something has clearly happened. Uh, we look at college students primed with positive emotion. Uh, well, I'm sorry, high school students primed with positive emotion. They tend to do better on uh, standardized testing. Mm -hmm. They answer more questions. They answer more questions correctly. They tend to have higher GPAs. So, you know, we can look across the board from students, doctors, to um, other professionals and, get a, and, and really get a sense in the research that, uh, that from a quantifiable perspective, uh, they're achieving on a higher level. Now, I would also just back up for a second and compare and contrast different kind of folks who have been successful because it, it would be irresponsible of me to argue that one cannot be unhappy and successful. Mm -hmm. Clearly, one can be unhappy and successful. We have to look at the Steve Jobs or a Kanye West or a Bobby Knight basketball coach and know that um, they're not really pushing positive emotions as a key factor, but they're successful. But then we can compare them to like, uh, like, like people, similar people. For Steve, for, for Steve Jobs, it could be a Richard Branson. Um, for Bob Knight, it could be a Mike Krzyzewski. To say, here are people who have really pushed the idea that it's important for me to be happy in life. It's important for me to surround myself, um, spend time with my family. And that's what helps me become successful. So we can look at it both from a, a um, from a public figure perspective or from a, measurable, uh, quantifiable perspective and see that 
there are potential advantages to uh, raising our levels of positive emotion when we're looking to be successful as well. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to work at being happy? And if so, what's, what are some good practices to do that? Absolutely. And, and it's a great question um, because I think a lot of folks uh, think, well, I am who I am. I'm simply I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy or I'm unhappy, and that's that. And if that was the case, then uh, talks about happiness uh, or the course that we teach at NYU, the science of happiness, would be exercises in extreme frustration, right? <laughs> because you walk into the classroom, we walk into a boardroom and say, all right, if you're happy, you have all these advantages. By the way, if you're not too bad, right? <laughs> Tough. You can't do anything about it. But what we found is that we can actually move the needle. Um, the, the, kind of the father of positive psychology is a, is a man named Martin Seligman. He's been at the University of Pennsylvania for decades. He started his work in, um, in depression, really understanding how people become depressed. And as he found, people learn to be depressed. It's through their actions that take them on a downward, downward spiral toward depression. We turned his research around about 20 years ago and thought, if people can learn to be depressed, can they, be lear- can they learn to be optimistic? and or can they learn to raise a level of positive emotion. Now, what he's found through copious research, both him and people throughout the world researching this, is that, yes, we can absolutely move the needle. Mm-hmm. And are there exercises? Absolutely there are. So I'll give you one example. Um, the Gratitude Journal. Gratitude Journal is one of the most evidence-based interventions that we have. And it's a really simple intervention. Uh, what it really calls for is that uh, participant takes five, maybe 10 minutes each night and writes down three things in a journal that they are grateful for and why they are grateful for them. So not just as simple as dog, spouse, child, but dog, because every time I see my dog, they leap up and show me great love and I have a wonderful time with them. Uh, colleague, not just because colleague, but because today I had, I had a rough time during a sales meeting and my colleague was really great about it, really listened, really listened to me and helped me out. So super simple, what it is and why. When we do that every night, we see after 30 days that our levels of positive emotions rise. Now, why is that? It's not just because we have found a few things. It's because what we're doing is we're reprogramming, reprogramming our brain to see the world differently. A lot of folks will come to the journal and say, the first night and say, ah, what do I possibly have to be grateful for? All right, now let me spend some time with this. But what they'll find as they go through the next couple of days and weeks and months is, all right, I wake up in the morning and I need to find something to be grateful for. I have that and I have that. And it's not three things. It's not five things. It's 10 things and 30 things they see throughout the day. What we're doing is reprogramming our brain to look at the world, to be able to find those things we're grateful for. And in doing so, it becomes a much more natural thing and our levels of positive emotions rise. Now, this is hardly the only intervention, nor is it one that works for everybody. As I tell my students at NYU, this is the cheesiest line I will give you all semester, but you are all beautiful little snowflakes. And what that means is that gratitude journal might work for you, but not for you. Mindfulness and meditation, which we've seen raises levels of well-being, might work beautifully for you in the first row, but you in the eighth row, you might hate it. Exercise, which we also know, compared to medication for mild to moderate depression, is equally effective. And that exercise, you might love it in the fourth row, but you in the 15th row, you might hate it, and it might not do anything. So, yes, there are plenty of interventions. Part of the journey is finding the one that's, that's right for you. 
So what do you do to practice happiness and, and to ensure that? Exercise has always been a big one for me. Hmm. I can tell, as can my wife, um, if I have or have not been exercising, because I can, my mood is my mood is very different. If I go for a couple of days without it, it's far more challenging for me to be happy, far more challenging for me to be relaxed, so on and so forth. So that's been a consistent throughout my life. I mean, I was an athlete growing up, and I have to maintain that movement. Uh, what I have absolutely noticed in recent years is as challenging as it's been, when I maintain a consistent practice of meditation, um, it changes my ability to deal with challenges, changes my, um, my concept of stress. It changes my level of patience. We have a little boy. Little boys are amazing. Ours is certainly wonderful. They are also <laughs> extraordinarily challenging. So I've noticed with that that there are moments where I might want to go, stop, and I sort of will sit back and say, okay, how do you want to handle this? I mean, to myself, what's the best way to do this? What's the best question you can ask them right now? the best way to sort of deal with the situation. So exercise helps me personally. Meditation, I find, really helps in how I address challenging moments in the world. And finally, I would go with the idea of making sure that um, I spend ample time with people I love, and like my friends. Uh, the quality of our relationships is the greatest indicator of our levels of happiness and well-being. So being aware of that, I know that I could certainly jump back into the library. I could isolate myself, close the door, just write and read and just focus on work. But when I make sure I spend time with my good friends, um, even if it's reaching out for a quick conversation every day, that really, really changes my level of happiness. So um, what we often tend to do is run away from those things. When I talk to my students, what do you do when you're stressed out? I run to the library. I go hide. I spend time with myself. I talk to, to clients or, or, or folks who are, who are in business. What do you do when you're really stressed out? I, I, I clam up. What we say is that's, that's akin to running away from the hospital when your appendix are about to burst. What you want to do when you're stressed out is run towards your friends. And I've found that even though it's challenging, that is probably the most powerful exercise that I maintain what habit that I maintain, what I want to maintain high levels of happiness. So in your research, what's one finding about happiness that caught you completely off guard? You know, I think that it would have to be, if you don't mind me answering this way, really the, the big picture of the effect that happiness has on our ability to perform. Um, you know, I, as someone who's been involved in performance in many ways, I think I was like a lot of like a majority of folks, which is you have to bear down, you have to suffer through it, you have to grit your teeth, you know, and there's not necessarily any room for happiness if you want to be the absolute best. That's sort of what I assumed, and it was really a choice. Uh, but I think for me, understanding how many high-performing people have said happiness is essential my performing at a high level is what really has caught me, caught me by surprise. And when I look at someone like Simone Biles, uh, the, the arguably the greatest gymnast of all time, who says, I think that if you're having fun, you can do better. I think, all right, so maybe she's an exception to the rule. But then I look at Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, arguably the greatest cellist of our generation, and he says the only reason to play is for pleasure. 
Um, I look at former Heisman Trophy winner Ron Dane. Talks about how much how important it was not to focus on stats, but really to have fun. And even funny, I was watching the other day. I'm I'm always scanning for this. I was watching the Jerry Seinfeld documentary Comedian, and there's a scene where he's talking to a young comedian, and the young comedian is saying, you know, I, I can't wait for the money and for the praise, and you know, and, and it's really hard for me to hear people when they say that, you know, um, uh, crit, you know, to criticize me. And and Seinfeld's like. You're in it for the wrong reason, man. Like, we're here because we enjoy what we do. So when I hear, like, the greatest comedian of, of a, one of our area, the, uh, the greatest gymnast of all time, an amazing classical musician, so on and so forth, and so many of them saying, part of the reason I'm great is because I have positive emotion. Um, I think that never fails to um, sort of both surprise and delight me. Uh, and, and, and that I think, that I think would be it. And we are, we as a culture tend to look for the negative. We celebrate the negative. The Jim Morrison, the Janis Joplin, the Steve Jobs, the folks who are suffering for their art. And we don't see often enough the folks who are, who are great because they're happy, because they take pleasure in their work. That is something that, that originally surprised me and, and continues to, I guess, delight me. Can you tell me a little bit about your class at NYU and, and what you cover in a semester? Sure. So our, our course is called The Science of Happiness. Um, and, and straight up, the very first class, we tell everyone who's in the classroom, listen, and we have 500 students in the classroom. I say we because I teach it with um, one of my best friends, uh, an adolescent psychiatrist named Dr. Alan Schlechter. Um, and we say, look, we lied to you. This course should not be called The Science of Happiness. This course should be called the science of well-being. But if we called the science of well-being, we'd have six of you in here instead of 500 of you in here. And now it's up to you whether you want to stay or not. Um, but what we talk about is that happiness is one element of well-being. Happiness is positive emotions. The smile you have on your face. It's the joy you might experience. Even sometimes it's the calm, the calm that you, that you have. Um, but there are many, many aspects to really rich well-being. And that is a huge portion of our class. That is to say, it's great to be happy, but if you don't have positive relationships, then it's really challenging to have well-being. So we teach uh, three, four classes on positive relationships. It's great to have happiness and positive relationships, but if you're not, if you're not engaged in the material that you're, that you're doing or the work that you're doing, um, if you don't have that, that great focus and get into the zone, it's really hard to be experience well-being, which is, why we teach a class on, uh, on flow and on um, engagement. It's really hard if you're not achieving something, right, whether it's getting your tasks done every day or a bigger achievement in your life. So we have a class on goal setting and a class on achievement. It's really hard to be your best if you're not able to um, have meaning in your life. So we teach a class on meaning. So it's a much richer idea than just let's be happy. It's positive emotions and relationships and meaning and, and engagement and all these other things that come into play. And yet, and, and yet we also need to be able to understand how change happens. So our second section after well-being is about change. And in this case, we'll talk about what is willpower? How does it work? How can you get more of it? Um, we'll talk about what is choice. Why is it challenging? How can you manage your choices best? We'll talk about 
What is stress? Because we all get stressed. How can you identify it? How can you really make the most of it? Not just eliminate it, but make the most of it. So first comes well-being, then comes change. Um, and then towards the end, we talk about uh, excellence. So what does it mean to be great? How do you define success for yourself? What, is this, what does science say about, about uh, the role of passion in success, the role of uh, expert development, how we do that psychologically? So we really focus on those three, those three areas. I think what's really important, however, to, to point out is that it's not all about happiness. That would be, that would be unrealistic. Mm-hmm. You can't have college students or people in corporate life expect everything's going to be great. Here are the opportunities. This is how we do it. We really need to prepare for the challenges for that kind of well-being. So about 30 to 40% of our class is challenges. What is stress? What is anxiety? What is depression? How do you recognize it? And how do you deal with it? Because it's going to happen. I mean, 90% of college students deal with stress every year. Uh, 45% of college students, they, they, they feel that things are hopeless at some point during uh, every year. Uh, 40% of college students have dealt with work debilitating depression every single year. So if we go in ignoring that, we're missing a major opportunity. Alan tends to focus on uh, those, those challenges as a psychiatrist. I tend to focus on the opportunities, happiness, relationships, meaning, purpose, so on and so forth. And together, we think that we give them an opportunity to anticipate what's coming, to make the most of what's happening, and to really understand how they can take an active role in changing. Uh, the one, last thing I'd say about it is that about 80% of our course has always been um, about, uh, about active experiential change, how to rewire yourself. So 80% of our grades are that. Every week they have an assignment, go home and um, do the gratitude journal for a week and then write a, write a short paper on that experience. Go home and uh, do conscious acts of kindness throughout the week and write about that experience. Go home and exercise your character strengths throughout the week and write about that experience. And as in doing so, students can figure out what does work for them. Uh, they can identify the challenges and also the opportunities for them to create that kind of change. But what we're really looking for, what we're looking to do is for them to experience change on a weekly basis and really on a, on a monthly basis and on a semester basis and really for their lives, what they can do moving forward. We, uh, we're very clear that first day, if, if change is not something you think you can do at all, this might not be the class for you. We're going to support it empirically. We're going to give you great research. We're also going to have you do a real hands-on approach. And I think that for them that works. I think also for every corporate uh, audience that I've had a chance to speak with, it's very similar to say, look, everyone wants change. Here are some ways to look at it, and here are some ways to do it. What advice would you give a younger version of yourself? I think it would be to take it easy on myself, to know that nothing happens immediately, uh, that, uh, that it's a process. Life's the process. Understanding and is a process. And, uh, gaining skill is a process. And success is a process. Um, I think that being able to take a step back and taking a deep breath occasionally, knowing it's not going to happen tomorrow, would be really, really healthy. I think that's first and foremost. That being said, I don't think I would have listened to myself. So that's a big challenge. You know, I'm like, that's great, Dad. Thanks a lot. I'll do it my own way. Um, but I think that would really, that would really be it. You know, my dad said something to me when I was a kid, which was 
don't worry about being the best. Uh, really focus on being the best you can be in something that you love. And I remember very clearly, I must have been 12 years old, but I still remember when he said that, and I thought, yeah, right, whatever. But I've certainly come to realize that over the years, um, both the, the research that supports it, but also my own personal experience and observation with clients um, has been just that. It really is on focusing on doing something you love and being the best that you can be. I think that would, that, that's the other bit too. All right. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I, maybe it's only this. I, mean, I know that we're, we're talking to a, to, a, to a specific population when we go work for the credit union. And I think what's really important, you know, if this helps prime folks who are going to be coming to the talk or engaging, you know, we have this, this book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life, um, is that it's really never too late to create change. And we, we found, uh, we found a neuroscientist, really one of the great breakthroughs, I think, in the last 20 years is our understanding that our brain remains plastic. It remains um, uh, malleable, uh, well beyond um, what we used to think it was, which is about 25 years old. And so folks out there who are coming to this talk or engaging with the material in any way, I would love for them to keep in the forefront of their minds that um, that we see change throughout the lifespan, that if we are able to develop a habit, whether it's a gratitude journal, meditation, or exercise, or, or, or beginning something new that we're interested in, gardening, tennis, cooking, whatever it might be, that our brains are still really malleable, they're really flexible, and that we are able to not only learn, but create great change for ourselves. So there's tremendous hope for anyone who decides to uh, decides they want to take that step uh, and and looking forward to making changes in their life. So I'm looking forward to being able to share some of that with the folks um, at the conference and um, and beyond. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. This podcast was sponsored by Trellens, a CUSO committed to providing innovative yet simple solutions to help credit unions adapt and thrive. Learn more at trellens.com.